You're listening to an episode of Law Review Squared, the Law Review Review. It is 8 p.m. on Thursday, March 11th, 2021. I'm joined today by our panel, Vishal, Shenley, Seth, and Joanne, who I'll ask to answer the question, what have you asked most recently of Siri, Alexa, or another home automation device? Let's start with Vishal. So I I don't have any of those. I, I never use the voice uh, assistance. So I, I can't really answer that. Um, I think the last time I might have spoken to a robot was when I called the DMV and I like told them my name and why I was calling. So if that's an acceptable answer, it's the best I can do. I think that's more complex than most people's queries of Alexa. Uh, Joanne. Um, I asked what the weather was going to be hourly this morning. Shanley. I'm like Michelle, I don't really speak to AI, so I don't have any answer for that. Sorry. Okay. Seth? I'll probably turn on a light. I have a couple of those smart lights, so. And I'm Tony Fernando. I'm pretty sure the last thing I asked Alexa to do was to set a timer so I could take a nap. While supplies last, you can still get a free Law Review Squared sticker by sending your mailing address to lexclava at gmail.com. That's L-E-X-C-L-A-V-A at gmail.com. We'll ship anywhere, even if you're overseas. And a reminder that the opinions here are those of the panelists and do not represent the view of Penn State Dickinson Law, panelists, present, former, or future employers, or any other entity. Contents of this recording do not constitute legal advice. Now I'm going to turn the episode over to you, Seth. The article this week is called Rubbing the Rabbit's Foot. Gallows, Superstitions, and Public Health Care in England during the 18th and 19th centuries by Roberta Harding. It was published in the Boston University Public Interest Law Journal back in 2016. Uh, we're about a month and a half out from being uh, about halfway to Halloween, so I figured now was about as good of a time as any to talk about some things like superstitions and executions and uh, magic cures from a, a hanged man's corpse. But in reality, uh, we're it's kind of in the thick of the semester here, so I didn't want to choose anything that was too legally hefty for the article this week. There's this book called uh, The Faithful Executioner by Joel Harrington, and it's this interesting sociological study of executioners in medieval times. In movies, we often see the executioner being played as some, like, usually tall, odd, and muscular character, and this isn't really that far off from reality. Uh, apparently, executioners had this weird role in medieval society where they were sort of outcasts and feared uh, because of their work. But uh, due to that, they had uh, a hard time finding partners and, and people to pass along their skills to. And so over time, executioners often would intermarry between other executioner families and had uh, these like partially incestual relationships and then passed their executioner skills on to their children. So uh, over time, we begin to see this almost like literal and figurative breed of person in executioners uh, that they typically share the same blood lineage and had, uh, you know, inherited their trade from their from their uh, prior generations within their family. Uh, but although they were outcasts, they uh, they often had quite a bit of wealth. First, it was a, a job that paid relatively well and actually required some significant level of skill. But there was also this far more lucrative side of being an executioner, like a little side hustle. And that was selling uh, little charms and amulets and, and body parts from the executed person. So, for example, back in the day, uh, an executioner could sell a small vial of blood from someone who had just been executed. Uh, and that vial could fetch top dollar on the streets of Canterbury because it was 
thought that the blood could cure health problems and bring good luck and all kinds of that stuff. So that's where this article comes in. Roberta Harding, uh, she delves into the persistence of these superstitions up through the 19th century, the alleged miracle cures and the socioeconomic conditions surrounding uh, the popularity of these cures, uh, as well as kind of how life uh, must have been pretty miserable back in England uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries. So to kick it off, uh, I'll open it up with a question. Uh, how are you a superstitious person? And did your pre-law school career have any sort of unique superstitions inherent to it, like uh, break a leg or something like that? Uh, we'll start off with uh, Vishal. Um, I'm not super superstitious. I, I So I, I love scary movies. I don't know if I believe in ghosts, um, but I love learning. Like the ghost tour that Pilf did, adored it. Um, and, and I don't know if y'all know, but the Speedway, I think is the gas station, um, coming in from Trindle Road in Carlisle, that used to be the Carlisle Gallows. People were hanged there, put to death, um, and, uh, there's ostensibly ghosts that will, uh, visit you while you're filling gas, uh, at night there, uh, is the claim. Um, so I, I, I love learning about that stuff. I, I love talking about it. Um, I can't say for sure that I'm not superstitious, but I, it doesn't keep me up at night, you know? Shanley? Um, I am not a superstitious person, uh, but my sister is very much into um, like her sage and her crystals and everything. And uh, she talks to them. And occasionally I will ask her, can you ask your crystals if I'll get an A on my final? Uh, she told me that they said, yeah, and that was a lie. Joanne? <laughs> uh, uh, well, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I believe that you know, there are ghosts and stuff, but I don't really believe in the, oh, break a mirror, seven years of bad luck. I've broken so many mirrors, and I somehow don't have that much bad luck. I mean, so I'm not superstitious in that kind of, you know, mindset that, or like crossing a black cat's path as bad luck um, or whatever. But I do like believe in ghosts. And whatnot. Tony? Yeah, I'm 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 trying to think here because I mean my, my gut reaction is to say no, I'm not superstitious, but I've worked in a number of fields and some of those fields have practices that aren't tied to the work being done necessarily. Um and there are things you know, like uh, the rain turtle, which is sort of a minor magic that infantrymen do to cause it to rain. Um, and I can't actually say that it doesn't work. One of the interesting things about superstition and ritual, and here I am cribbing pretty heavily from a historian's blog, a guy not, uh, who's a professor, uh, by the name of Brett Devereaux. His blog is uh, acoup.blog. Um, and he has a pretty good series about ritual in early times. And one of the things about ritual um, in early times and people in early times in general is that, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to look back and say, oh, that's really silly. That's really stupid. But those rituals develop because those people who are just as smart as you or I are observing them actually functioning. Um, not necessarily in the case of the gallows, 
um, medicine stuff, which we're going to talk about, but rituals don't develop out of, out of vapor and they don't keep in hold as, as a matter of vapor. And I think that there are practices that we don't necessarily always think about um, that really are only based in superstition and kind of this weak observation of statistically unlikely events rather than um, being kind of false in whole cloth. So what do you folks make of the increase in the number of crimes punishable by death, uh, which were mostly property crimes at the time in London, uh, which the city and the nation of of England in general was experiencing industrialization, uh, massive urbanization, and uh, upwards of a 30% poverty rate? Tony? Yeah, so uh, this is something that I thought was interesting. The the author makes a the article makes a big uh, deal about the number of crimes that are punishable by death, and I think that there were probably a lot of people who were sentenced to death, but the number of executions doesn't really bear out that they were being executed. So in the article, he gives a number of twelve hundred people being executed over the course of the eighteenth century, which would be about a hundred people a year. That's not that many compared to, say, the United States over, um, you know, 1950 to 2000. Um, I think what was happening is people were being sentenced to death. Their sentences were being commuted to transportation in order to provide warm bodies for the colonies uh, on economic grounds. And the excessively in this this really harsh penal system was used as kind of a, a club to hold over the 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 working class or the poor in order to keep them in line. Michelle? Yeah, I mean, going off of that, uh, the severity of the punishment the state sets for a certain crime kind of betrays what the state's interest is or how the state uh, imagines it, it retains power in any given context. So, you know, in in, in feudal uh, Europe, when uh, the church was very important and uh, there wasn't a, a whole amount of urbanization and other things, the things that were punishable by death included, you know, speaking ill of the king or speaking ill of, 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 you know, sacred religious precepts. Those things aren't illegal anymore. They're not, you can't put someone, I mean, at least in the U.S., you won't put someone to death for it. Um, but that's not where the state gets its power. And so it's, it isn't surprising to me at all that as, um, you know, the material conditions in the, in the U.K., I guess, it, it changed. And as urbanization was coming to the fore and, and private property and how private property was managed became much more central to how the state defined its power how it got its tax revenue, um, that that became, you know, crimes that assaulted those institutions became crimes that were punishable by death. It isn't surprising. Um, and, 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 you know, I think Tony's right that it, even if uh, many of the people who were sentenced to death weren't actually killed, the, the severity of the crime is part of, uh, you know, keeping the working class in line, telling them that these are the lines you may not cross. And just as an aside, I don't, did you answer the first question, Seth? Would you like to answer the first question? I just want to make sure everyone got a turn. Um, sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm not that superstitious. Um, maybe if I'm driving and a black cat crosses in front of my car, I might, uh, might take a turn, but other, otherwise I'm, I'm pretty good to go. Shelly, do you have an answer for, uh, for the second question about the, uh... um, I I thought 
thought that I, it was actually pretty sad to me because uh, it seemed like some of the crimes were like petty crimes or just like crimes of circumstance. Um, and, you know, you're talking about people who live in kind of like abject poverty and you could really kind of see the line of demarcation between um, the classes. And I thought that that was just kind of sad how some people would just, you know, basically be killed uh, you know, for really no reason. Um, and that, that was kind of all that I took, took away from that. Joanne, do you have any thoughts? Um, I thought it, I I think it's a little ridiculous the amount of crimes that was punishable by death, but I think like Tony said, it was like a holding that over people's heads to control better so that they didn't cause problems. I think with the amount of people that were sentenced to death. Um, and the amount of people that actually were executed is vastly different just because, you know, um, a lot of things didn't completely go through. I think there were still a lot of uh, executions and everything, but I think there was less than were, uh, you know, you would think by how many crimes were punishable by death. So we're on the tail end of a global pandemic and some notable ways people have tried to prevent contracting uh, COVID-19 include things like 5G repelling, uh, USB drives, cotton balls soaked in violet oil applied to the anus, uh, eating onions and garlic, and even uh, summoning the winds of God. And this is a clip from televangelist uh, Kenneth Copeland. COVID-19! COVID-19! I blow, I blow the wind of God, the wind of God on, you. on you. You are destroyed forever. You are, you are destroyed, destroyed forever. And you will never be back. And you will never, never be back. Ironically enough, I think I said those same words uh, when I turned in my civ profile last semester. So while rubbing a piece of rope used to hang a person on uh, a tooth might sound like a crazy way to cure a toothache, have we really changed our mindset on magical cures when it comes to public health and medical care in modern times? Go to uh, Shenley for that one. Um, I do think in large part, uh, maybe, uh, I would hope the majority of people, you know, follow science and, you know, definitely believe in public health. But there are some people, as evidenced by this uh, clip you just showed, who you still kind of, um, I feel like, uh, like to hang, do superstitious things. I mean, not even just this religious clip, but, you know, our former president had recommended that people drink bleach. And uh, that is incredible that the, I think the CDC had to come out with a warning telling people not to in, inject bleach into their system. So I think when people are hopeless and sad, um, you know, they're, they're kind of desperate to turn to anything to kind of make themselves feel better. So, you know, we're in a pandemic right now and everyone wants to get back to normal. And I feel like um, some people are really, um, you know, they'll, they'll just kind of do anything um, to get back to some type of normalcy. Joanne? Yeah, I think what Shinley said is right. We're kind of in a 
time where we all feel kind of helpless. So anything, we're praying to anyone and we're just hoping that what we're doing is going to help us uh, even though in reality the science is just like be safe <laughs> stay at home but you know there are still of course people that are um, using different methods uh, like the clip you just showed of you know blowing away the COVID the power of God I mean um, so I think even nowadays, uh, our superstitious uh, mindsets have not changed at all. We're still willing to do anything and everything. You can even apply that to like uh, skincare routines and stuff. Uh, people believe that uh, different things are good for your skin or whatever. And, is there's some crazy things that people put on their skin because you know they're like all right well this is gonna bring good vibes and make my skin great so i it's not really different than it was back then tony so uh, i'm of a couple minds here one i think that if you sincerely believe in your religion why wouldn't you pray um, to God or gods to, uh, save you from COVID. Um, that does not seem to me to be in the same category as 5g repelling USB drives, which, which makes no sense whatsoever. Um, I also think that even if you do sincerely believe in your religion, you still get the vaccine, even though you're asking God to, <laughs> to save you because why wouldn't you take every precaution that you possibly could? But to me, um, at least the religious portion of that seems to be a reasonable, um, a reasonable thing for a person to be doing. Um, now the 5g repelling drives, the drinking bleach, the, um, cotton balls soaked in violet oil and, and other, other things that you mentioned. Um, I do think that they do kind of provide a counterpoint to the Deborah thesis I had mentioned that people are generally um, not completely stupid and that they believe things about their environment that they're perceiving and that they're you know receiving as authority and that that they have a reason to believe in um, you know but one thing that and this is one area where I, I, I thought the article was weak um, the article is presenting these gals medicine rituals or traditions as, as having existed for hundreds and hundreds of years for a ritual or a superstition to persist that long there should be something of, of value within it and if 800 years from now people are using 5g repelling usb drives then the only reason why you would expect that would be if there was some type of efficacy where i think the author failed however was in establishing that these traditions actually were that old um I do think that there were some source issues. Um, there was nothing uh, prior to the 1880s, and it's all secondary sources. But the author is talking about events that are happening in the 1700s and the 1800s. People were writing letters in English at that time. It's not like you have to be able to read Greek or Latin, you know, in order to find source material about that. And you know, 
these types of things, you can imagine a character in a Jane Austen novel writing to her, you know, counterpart, you know, also a member of the bourgeoisie, you know, telling about, you know, these quaint customs that she observed at the local execution, um, if they were actually occurring. Um, so I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I kind of have a suspicion that the, um, the cures that are being presented were, are, are being derived from poor sourcing, being derived from sourcing that was, um, has some political motivations because a lot of history that was written in the early part of the 1900s was, was written for a purpose rather than being trying, trying to be objective, um, to show kind of how silly the, the, the lower people were. Remember, England is still very class stratified even today. And it certainly was at the early part of the 1900s. Um, but certainly people, like Shanley said, will grab at anything when they're hopeless. And that that's certainly part of human behavior. Michelle? Yeah, I think the hopeless um, idea that people have been uh, talking about is, is important, but also the, the notion that these kinds of things give people a sense of control over their lives, right? I mean, there are people who, for very illogical reasons, are terrified of flying, and the biggest reason they can give is because they're not there's no control once you leave um, the tarmac, right? It is all up to the pilot, to the weather systems. There's nothing you can do about it except sit there in the tube. Um, I think a lot, uh, it is a very human impulse to just feel terrified when you don't have control over things and watching your body betray you to microscopic organisms that you can't see, having your lungs fill with mucus um, and feeling uncomfortable and miserable, but you, you can't see your lungs. You can't feel the mucus. Um, it doesn't surprise me at all that people look for ways to feel in control of their lives. Um, I don't think that's ever going to change. I think that as long as there are uh, ultimately different healthcare systems for people who have access to, to uh, you know, actual preventive medicine, actual uh, palliative medicine, and then certain people don't have access to it, the people who don't have access to it are going to do whatever they can um, to feel in control of their lives, to feel like they can do something to make themselves feel better. Um, and, and, you know, like Tony said, uh, 5G repelling USB drives might not have any efficacy, so we won't see them in a few hundred years. My mom still swears on turmeric being a cure-all for bruises and cuts and scrapes and burns. It's an Indian folk, uh, and I'm sure other cultures use it as well, but, but you know, my dad always loves to harp that there is science to suggest that uh, turmeric does in fact have some kind of antiseptic properties, some kind of anti-inflammatory properties and other stuff like that. I think it's on the Wikipedia. Um, so, I mean, you know, the traditions that persist might have some marginal efficacy to them. I think that is certainly true. Um, and, and there will always be people trying to do whatever they can to feel like they have control over their lives, to feel like they can do something to make their situation better. The gallows touch was a term used to describe the alleged healing properties of touching an ailed body part to the hand or neck of a recently hanged person. Given that this was a routine medicinal procedure throughout England for hundreds of years, were any resulting effects just placebo and superstition? And, and what is the impact of belief on, uh, on healing, persevering, and, and overcoming? 
We'll go to uh, Joanne. You want to start that one? I think a lot of it is definitely placebo, just because, you know, we believe it so strongly. We think um, a lot of times if there's not a uh, real serious medical problem or whatever, um, you know, we go, oh, this will help me. And, you know, um, you trick your brain into thinking that it, that thing has helped you. Um, so then you have been helped, but it wasn't actually as a result of whatever uh, medicine, so-called medicine or whatever you were taking. It's just your mind told you that you felt better. You convinced yourself that that the medicine worked, even if there's no real evidence um, that it could have worked possibly. Um, I think belief is a really, I think it works for some instances. Um, like you have like a really bad toothache or something or, or headache or whatever and you go all right well if I drink some sugar water I've heard that this is this can help and if you strongly believe that it will you'll trick your mind into thinking that um, it will work and so it will but there's other instances that where you're like deathly ill or whatever if you have cancer or something belief isn't gonna do anything um you you can't just say tumor be gone i'm gonna drink this uh fancy carbonated water and it will cure my cancer that's not how it works but i think simple things that aren't like um like really biological diseases or whatever can be cured cured by uh, belief tony I think it's a difficult problem because as far as we know, there's no controlled, you know, double-blinded studies. And I say as far as we know, because this is, these cures are, are supposedly happening in the 1700s and 1800s. And that's the dawn of recorded, you know, modern scientific medicine. And if I am Isaac Hook or, you know, somebody like that, who's doing that early work on medicine, and these are the cures that are there in my society. Why would I not investigate them? Jeremy? I I do personally think it was a placebo effect, but I also do think that, um, you know, there's power in positive thinking. And um, a lot of times, like if you just kind of change the way you're thinking um, and if you have encouragement, uh, think, you know, in your mind thinking that this worked for someone else, perhaps it'll work for me, you know, that could definitely change someone's situation. Sean? Yeah, I mean, I, I really want to, like, double down on what Shenley just said. The, the it, it is important to recognize that people deserve and should be allowed to feel better regardless of what they need to do to do that, particularly when they're in kind of health crises, right? Um, some kind of tonic might not cure you of your cancer, but so long as you're not taking that tonic and exclusion to actual medicine, you know, go for it. 
vibe take your tonic feel well um i i i mean there's often a a a pejorative connotation to describing something as a, a placebo uh thing but i you know if people find comfort in things i never want to tell them that they can't do that um I uh, I understand that like what we're talking about with the gallows touch is very macabre. I mean, <laughs> these are like dead bodies, uh, implements of of execution and stuff like that. Um, and there's a few that I feel like are traumatizing too, right? Like touching a child's face with the hands of a dead man. I don't. I that co- might cause harm, right? <laughs> but but so long as you're not causing harm and you're not doing things to exclusion of actual medicine, I I'm of the firm belief that like people should do what they need to do to get through life. Life's hard enough as it is, um, and you know um, it, it is important to believe that things will get better, and and you should do what what you can to to you know instill that belief in yourself. So health problems skyrocketed in the industrialized England, uh, largely due to abysmal working and living conditions. This drove people to increasingly seek the gallows touch. And over time, uh, Parliament overhauled the criminal law system, which reduced the number of capital offenses to only murder, piracy, treason, and uh, arson of naval yards and armories. They also, the Parliament also began to hold uh, private executions uh, instead of the glamorous hangings in the public square. So this effectively put an end to the gallows touch cures, but um, wouldn't it have been easier and, and maybe more effective for Parliament to support better working and living conditions to improve the health of their population? Uh, or do economies develop under a relatively standardized process and by attempting to prematurely jump to a future level of development, these improvements could have driven England uh, actually backward from their newly industrialized state uh, to one that's less industrialized. Michelle? Um, So there's two questions here. I'll answer the first one first, which was about wouldn't it have been more effective to just help people with their living conditions and work environments? Um, It probably would have been better, um, but that just wasn't the state's interest, right? The uh, government is uh, – governments have been and continue to be very good at punishing people, putting them in prison, telling them they can't do things. Uh, For whatever reason, uh, Western governments haven't been super into taking care of people. I hope that changes in the future. Uh, But I I just think of uh, studies, you know, out of a lot of places. There's an example in Utah where they found that housing homeless people is less expensive and better for the uh, city and just better for everybody than putting them in prison or sending them to uh, shelters or tearing up their encampments. Um, so they started buying them hotel rooms and and it was cheaper and better for everybody, but they hadn't been doing it for years. Um, it's it, it doesn't surprise me that that's what happened. Governments don't try to solve problems. They try to punish away problems. It's been kind of the uh, paradigm for a lot of uh, government actors for a long time, and I really hope that you know that kind of paradigm shifts moving forward. Um, your second question is is a little dangerous because it it reminds me of like Marx's stages of 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 economic development, right? Um, like dialectical materialism. Um, I don't think that there was anything uh, structurally that would have been holding the government back uh, from from providing that kind of help. I don't think, you know, uh, uh, 
burgeoning capitalist economy can't do that. There have been uh, post-colonization, uh, there have been burgeoning uh, capitalist economies that have just come into the capitalist like world economy uh, that have managed to uh, do so while advancing public health and stuff like that. Um, it just wasn't a priority for the English government. And I think that speaks to just how much disdain uh, the English ruling class had for uh, people who who were at the lower end of the of the social hierarchy and the economic hierarchy. Um, yeah, I, I think that's the reason that those improvements didn't happen. They absolutely could have. Um, and, you know, there was, as as Tony mentioned, this was when um, modern medical science was kind of coming up. There, like things were, people were learning how to do the things right. Um, there just wasn't an interest in having public health. Chairman, that is a very big question, um, and I don't necessarily know how, what my response to that is. I mean, I've. I am management, but I'm always on the side of labor. I just want to make that disclosure. So I, and I feel like, uh, you know, if you have a healthy and happy labor force, uh, it's, you know, they're more productive. It's just, it's just better overall for society. So I do think that, uh, it, you know, at least giving people basic uh, clean, clean environments, uh, suitable working conditions, um, you know, it just you know, giving them dignity is something that I always advocate for. Um, and then, you know, just reading about the like squalor living conditions that people were in. I mean, like I, I can see why you would turn to, um, you know, superstition and like really hold on to a religion because it, it's probably the only thing that gives you some type of hope. Um, but I also do think uh, Vishal had a really good point. You know, the government likes to punish people, uh, you know, punish people into complacence, into uh, being compliant. And that's kind of how you, I, I believe the government toes the line. So yes, I do think it would have been more effective uh, for parliament to, and, and not even just parliament, just government across the board to have suitable living conditions for um you know working class people but i i am hopeful like michelle said that 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 will change in a very near future I, I haven't seen it much but i i think it will happen and hopefully uh you know we're allowed to see it well um i'm not hopeful but <laughs> the uh uh I, I i think anytime you have a question like the first part of this question um you yeah, you know, wouldn't it have been easier or more effective for Parliament to support better working conditions? Yes, there's two questions you need to ask. Um, one, more effective for what? What's the objective that the state or you know the people making decisions are trying to reach? And in this case, the objective was not to have a healthy populace. It was to produce X number of widgets and X tons of coal and you know make sure that the economy keeps ticking along. And then the other question you have to ask is who benefits? So uh, under the English system, the aristocracy, uh, you know, is basically at the top. Their property system is, is, is feudal. It's not, you know, traditionally fee simple the way that ours, ours has developed to draw in property, which we have a midterm tomorrow. And, um, and um, I, I, I think that the people in charge made rational decisions for being in charge, those decisions did not assist the vast majority of the, of the populace. And I think that that's what happens everywhere, including here, right? Uh, Upton Sinclair 
wrote The Jungle about, you know, the the stockyards of Chicago in the 1920s, not because it was like a joke. It was because there were these horrible conditions in the meat production industry of the United States that were entirely as a result of capital capitalists maximizing their profits. And I, I, I really see no change. Um, and, and I see no, no reason to believe that in this country, it's going to change. The second part of the question was different though. It was do economies develop under standardized processes and jumping level of developments actually drive them backwards. And I don't think so. I think that, um, you could have had a different pattern of industrialization and still gotten the production bonuses. Um, you can have companies that pay every employee a minimum wage of $70,000 and, you know, still see growth in profits. Um, that's Zappos. It's a shoe company um, that did that experiment out, out in California. Um, we collectively as a society allow people to choose not to do those things. So we'll wrap it up with a little bit of a lighter question. What was your favorite gallows superstition cure uh, from the article's appendices? And are you uh, you considering giving it a try next time you get sick? Uh, Joanne? I didn't like any of them because they all involved a dead body. And um, I'd rather leave the dead bodies in the morgue for when I become a forensic scientist. So no dead bodies for me right now. Don't need them to help me get better. No, thank you. Tony? Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I suppose I need to find some wood chips from a gallows just in case I get catch a fever. Vishal? I, I already mentioned this before. I, th I the one I will always remember is the children's good health one that it described. And, you know, it, it's it's one of the few preventative ones on the list. Yeah, you uh, stroke a, a child with the hands of a hanged man. Um, I can't imagine doing this to my kid. I don't I, I don't ever intend to have kids. I don't have kids. I have this dog I treat like a kid. I would never put a dead person's hands near him. You know, it's just I it's bizarre. I can't believe people used to do that. Um, so I that was my favorite. I definitely won't be doing it. Uh, but it was it was great. Shenley? Um, this wasn't my favorite, but it kind of made me like cringe a little uh like the women who were infertile how they would have the dead body like rub their bosom and i was like can you imagine a dead body like copping a feel off of a woman and her miraculously getting pregnant like this is insane so i was just kind of like really appalled by that one <laughs> yeah those are funny um uh, well i mean if it if it worked back then um it should work today right or so say the originalists. That was low. <laughs> and uh, so, Seth, what was your favorite one? I was going to go with the infertility one. I thought that one was hilarious. Yeah. Gotcha. I will have to look the next time I'm at that speedway if there are any wood chips left around. Um, if I find any, I'll, I'll, bring, I'll bring them in. Which one is it? Is it the one? Um, which one was it again? So I, I don't know what the road is called once you get into Carlisle. It's called Trindle when you leave uh, Camp Hill, which is close to where I live. 
Um, and you just go all the way west on that road. It turns into a road in Carlisle. There's a speedway on your left, a Burger King on your left, a Taco Bell to your right. Um, and if you just keep on that road, the, the school is to the left. Um, and, uh, and yeah, the, the speedway there used to be a, a hanging gallows. And I, it's just like my favorite fact about Carlisle. Well, on that note, um, we're about out of time. Uh, thanks again to our panel, Vishal, Shanley, Seth, and Joanne. A reminder, you can find a link to the article discussed by going to lawreviewsquared.com and looking at the episode notes. Let us know what topics you'd like us to consider by Twittering suggestions to add Squared Law. Please like, follow, subscribe, or give us a rating wherever you found this podcast. If you're a law student at any school and would like to be on a panel, feel free to get in touch. Audio post-processing by Mohammed Salim. Podcast adjourned.